Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner from Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and this is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, we have an exciting show for today, uh, another Monday, and we want to kick it off by first of all recognizing that uh, this week, August 11th, is uh, my wife's birthday. So I want to make sure I recognize her before I forget and get myself in trouble there. So happy birthday, Brittany. Um, Another thing that we want to talk about is last week there was the primary elections, and we had some interesting results. I I think primarily positive when we're looking for the people that are going to represent the Republican Party in the general election. You go down the list, and uh, we start looking at uh, who will most likely represent us for um, the governor's race, and that is Carrie Lake. Uh, she, her main opponent there in that primary was Karen Taylor Robson. Right. Both good candidates. And, and we, we've had discussion about those two in the past, and, and what do you think? So I personally like Carrie Lake. I know that she is a bit more progressive, She's not your traditional conservative Republican, um, and Karen Taylor Robinson is. But honestly, at this point, I think that there's politics have gotten even uglier and more of a fist fight than they had been in the past, and you need a fighter. You need somebody that is willing to go toe-to-toe with the opposition party, uh, throw a few punches, take a few on the chin, and keep in the fight. And she can do that. Um, and also when she does, I, I do like uh, her statements as policy. We'll see what she actually does because she hasn't been in politics before. Right. Yeah. She's a newscaster. Yeah. She's been a reporter for 20 years. And uh, so she's been on both sides of the aisle, right? She supported Barack Obama. And uh, we know that. And she's um, been a little bit more liberal when it comes to like the transgender type of support. Um, you know, she attends apparently drag queen events. Um, I'm not as concerned. That does concern me a little bit. Every time I, I look into a candidate, I want to look into who they are as a person and their moral character comes into that, right? If they can't maintain their household at home, how are they supposed to help govern abroad or at large? Um, so, but she's very adamant that what adults do is, is different than what we indoctrinate our children to do. And currently the issue is, should we expose children to transgender ideologies and allow them to decide for themselves what gender they are and uh, what lifestyle they want to lead in grades as early as first and second and third? And, and absolutely not is my response. So as far as that goes, you know, you got Karen Taylor Robson that is a, a little bit more conservative and a little bit more, I think, predictable as far as what she would do as a politician, Carrie Lake is less predictable. If this was pre-2016, I would say let's go with the predictability. But seeing what Trump was able to bring to the table, I was, I was not a fan of Trump in 2016. And I'll tell you, I didn't even vote for Trump in 2016 because I thought he was too radical. I thought, you know, th- th- we, who knows what we're going to get with this guy. And every time he spoke... Um, the claims that he was a narcissist, I think, were manifested <laughs> because he, he, he does think that he is God's gift to the world. But I, 
I can't argue with his policies well, and what he actually was able to accomplish. And, and, and for the American people, we are better off for it. We are running out of the surplus that he built up for us quickly. Joe Biden is quickly wasting that away, but he did some fantastic things for the country and the world. He went and helped out with the Middle East, reestablished uh, our relationship with Israel, and tried to settle tensions there and did a better job than all the Democratic predecessors to him, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, um, and even um, the Bushes. He, he, he accomplished quite a bit. So... You look at what he did for the economy. You look at what he did for the world. The world knew exactly what his position was. North Korea was was threatening nuclear missile strikes every other week during Barack Obama's presidency. As soon as President Trump got in there, President Trump's like, listen, fire or don't fire. If you do, yeah. you'll be done, right? You, you're living your little bubble right now with your surrounded by your lies and, and schemes and and you you know that and you can continue to enjoy that and uh, we'll ignore you or if you continue to threaten us then we're going to expose you for what you are and that's generally going to be with um, a big firebomb so that put them put the world on notice that America wasn't messing around anymore and under the democratic leadership I think the world felt like we can keep these guys talking forever as as we go in and orchestrate whatever manipulative scheme we want, like this whole Iran nuclear deal. I mean, it really felt like the eight years prior to that, like the world was walking over America. And and that was the difference. And America was saying, yes, please do. And can I have some more? And yeah. we're sorry for whatever we did prior to that point. Yeah, we'll bow to you. You know, and, and that was literally happening. But, you know, Sean, I, I think back of, of those conversations and I remember, you know, what you said and it, it really did resonate with me. And you're like, I have to explain this to my children. And when my children are, are asking questions like, why is the president, you know, using this kind of language or, or, or doing these kind of actions, mm -hmm. it's hard to explain. Yeah. You and that, that was the hardest thing for me. So the moral issue for me was a real stumbling block to um, get on the Trump train. But... Gosh, at the end of the day, when, when he gets things done and the other candidates promise to the world and deliver nothing except more socialistic you know, programs and regime, you got to go with the person that offers freedom. And I'm for freedom, whether that's choosing to make bad decisions for yourself as an adult, right. not as a child, but as an adult, and even if those are bad decisions. And so um, I'm all about people being able to decide if they want to stay in or go out if there's an epidemic and if they want to be exposed to what the covid terrorist uh, or covid epidemic is then let them be exposed that's what a free country is it comes with pros and cons if they want to hide under their couch let them hide under their couch if they want to get vaccinated with a vaccine that does has very little long-term research and testing evidence as to the efficiency and side effects, let them get vaccinated. And don't let all of those things be political issues. Let the people choose for themselves. That's what freedom means. Um, we're coming, you know, a lot of people were saying uh, that the epidemic with the coronavirus was not, it should not be political. And that um, all we need to do is hunker down for a few weeks and then a few months and then a few years and it's, it's good for everybody. But we were supposed to follow the science until the science clearly shows that, that that could not be stopped, no matter 
if we were wearing one mask or four masks or having one vaccine or four additional boosters, um, you're going to get the virus and uh, let each individual talk to their doctors, look at the medical research and decide for themselves what it is that um, they want to do for their personal health care decisions. That's what a free society traditionally does. Well, I mean, we saw that manipulated this time around. I mean, we saw if, if you want to continue to go to your job or if you want to live a life, you're going to have to, you know, yeah, do this. You know, how many thousands of people were laid off or fired because they would not get the vaccine? How demoralized was the military because of the politics around the vaccine that got involved? Um, it just really separated the country. And... That, that was really, really unfortunate. And so, again, we're getting off the topic a little bit. What the topic was is, is does a, a candidate like Trump allow us to exercise freedom and then he does his own thing on his own personal time, which you may or may not agree with, but at least allows the rest of us to exercise our freedom? And I think the answer to that is yes. And so when you get a candidate like that, those are holding true to the values of the founding fathers and truly what I think are our inalienable rights, which is to decide how we exercise our liberty as we, as we go throughout this life. So I think those, those are super important issues. Um, I think both Carrie Lake and um, Taylor Robinson, they, they supported those issues, but Carrie Lake, she was endorsed by Trump. And she's more of a radical thinker, specifically on the topic of issues like water. She, she's, she wasn't entrenched in the system like uh, Taylor Robson was. Uh, when she was asked what she would do to address the drought issue that we're facing, and it's severe. I'm surprised it's not a talking point every day on the news, on the radio, everywhere you look, because Lake Mead which is one of the largest reservoirs in the United States, and Lake Powell, which is right up there with it, um, are at 23% of capacity. Have you seen like those water lines? I, I've been watching it on yeah. a weekly basis. I'm an avid boater. I, I was up at Lake Mead last year. I was up at Lake Powell as well. Lake Powell, um, the launch ramp was a mile long to get to the water, and there was only... I think only one or two launch ramps available at that time. And it's gotten significantly worse since then. And when we're talking about the water level dropping here, we're talking about it dropping by 100 feet. And it's 75,000 acres of water. When that much water drops by 100 feet, we've got a catastrophe just right at our doorstep. The rains that occurred in Las Vegas, that flooded Las Vegas, they added essentially one-fourth of an inch. So One-third of an inch. Sorry. Not enough to move the dial. One-third of an inch to that lake. Okay, So people are like, well, it rained a lot. Is that going to help the drought? One-third of an inch to a lake that's down 100 feet. No. And you know, and, help a lot. and you, you look at communities like Las Vegas, and they're doing things like adding astroturf, and and they're adding incentives so you don't use water, and that's not really a good sign. That's not a sign that we've solved the problem at all. Right, right. And and, and here's the thing, though: when you use water, and I'm not 
the expert, obviously. But um, here's here's the thing: it actually is a life cycle that can continue to work together in a cyclical pattern. That it's not the more that you use, the less that you have. You can use water and continue to have and recycle and reuse that water over and over again for multiple uses. For example, you can go out, and the whole reason that Yuma has so much groundwater and the wells are, are so shallow that we can dig is because we are using the Colorado River to irrigate the fields. If you stopped using the Colorado River to irrigate the fields, the wells would dry up. So you can't just say, well, I've got a well, I don't have to worry about the river water. Well, unless that river water is there irrigating and, and constantly replenishing the underground water sources, you're not going to have those wells. And the same thing happens in Las Vegas and everywhere else. They can use water to water the grass and the farms and the crops and produce not only good quality of life, but food for the country. But then that water goes into the underwater aquifers and uh, aquifers and um Aquaphor is a good moisturizer. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they, they can um, continue to use that water. And honestly, when you use the water um, in your home and it goes down the drain and it goes to the, the city water treatment plant, uh, that water comes out cleaner than it came in originally. And most cities send that water downstream. So essentially, the Colorado River, the water that we're seeing is actually been used dozens of times before it gets to us, which sounds kind of gross. But in reality, it comes out cleaner every single time. And so we actually get a very good, clean water source because of all the uses that it went through. So it's not like you use water and it's gone. You can use it over and over again if you use it appropriately. We just need to make sure that there's enough coming down and, and available in the first place. We've got to take a break. It says 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. When we come back, uh, we're going to bring on Adam Hansen and then talk a little bit about the election results and also um, the beloved Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. 
Welcome back, Huma. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I am Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I've got sitting right next to me Adam Hansen, and across the table is Cody Beeson. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the elections. So how did you feel about the outcome, Adam? It was a, a surprising outcome, I would say. Not surprising. I, I was curious going into the election to see did Trump have an effect or not on those candidates that he endorsed? And I think you brought this up already. Those that he did endorse, specifically Carrie Lake, the governor race was really interesting to me. I thought we had two good candidates on the Republican ticket. You know, you had Carrie Lake and you had uh, Taylor Robeson. And um, I, I voted for Robeson because I thought she was, well, first of all, I'm an attorney and she's an attorney. And so I, not that that's the reason I voted for her, but I thought, well, maybe she has more wherewithal, more, um, more, uh, what do you say, understanding Anal of analytical, analytical gravitas yeah. uh -huh. um, or understanding of water law because she has practiced in development most of her career. So she understands those issues. But you and I have this talk frequently, Sean, where we'll, you'll often bring up the idea of an outsider or an outsider mindset. We at our firm, we look for people that aren't necessarily coming from the legal realm when we are hiring because we want to be able to teach that individual coming into our firm as a new hire certain procedures or certain ways of doing things. We don't want them entrenched in the old ways that they might have learned on another uh, job at a legal landscape. At yeah, the we, we like do that. things completely different than the traditional pattern. And um, so we don't have a lot of success of hiring from other firms because they've been indoctrinated in how majority of attorneys do it, which is billing by the hour and taking on uh, cases that deal with conflict. And, and we do that completely differently. And it's hard to take that, that mentality out of, a, out of an individual. And especially even when we hire from directly out of school, we haven't had great success from hiring paralegals um, that have a paralegal certificate from AWC or another college. Um, and that's interesting because we want somebody that is a blank slate when it comes to how we practice law because we do it differently. And we found great success in the Yuma community. And according to um, the past, I don't know, 11 out of 12 years, we've been voted new, Yuma's number one law firm. So the community seems to agree that we're doing a good job. We've got over a thousand uh, five-star reviews over social media platforms, and so people seem to like what we're doing, and it's absolutely different than what other law firms are doing, and I think that's what you're getting at from the political standpoint. We don't want to see the same old regiment over and over again. It's not working. We want to see somebody mix it up a little bit like Trump did. And you made a comment earlier about, uh, specifically about Carrie Lake, and how we had this conversation yesterday. We were talking about the water issue specifically, that's a big issue to you. And you mentioned before that you're such an avid boater. You're, you're constantly taking um, a note of the water levels of our river and our lakes because you take your boat out quite often with your family. And that's fantastic. And you, I, I would argue that you have a very good knowledge of, of those issues. I, on the other hand, don't. My boat is most of the time broken in the shop. So when I'm out on the river, I'm usually paddling my boat back to the shore because it doesn't usually work. So I've had the opposite uh, 
interest in going to the river as much as you do, Sean. But having said that, you're very entrenched in the, um, or I shouldn't say entrenched, but you understand the water issues more so than the average person, I would say, in our community. And you made a comment about Cary Lake. You you used a word, and I don't know if you meant to use this word or not, but you said she's kind of radical. And, and then you gave this example of why. she She's, and when we were talking about her yesterday, you had mentioned how on the water issue itself, when you watched the debate between her and, and uh, Taylor Robeson, that um, she brought up, they, they asked, well, would you be willing to pipe, build a pipeline from Mississippi to the Southwest as an option? And Carrie Lake, and, and, my, and I'm parroting what you told me, I didn't see the debate, but what I understood you to say was Carrie Lake's response was something like, all options are on, on the table. We're not going to, we're not going to um, try and censor uh, um, any type of think tank on that issue. And then you, you mentioned that your opinion was of, of Taylor Robeson in that debate that she said, no, that, that's debunked. She used that word debunked, which you didn't like. And correct me if I'm wrong as I'm saying this, Sean. I'm trying to paraphrase our conversation yesterday, but you said that she said, no, that's been debunked. You know, it's it's ludicrous to think that we could build a pipeline from the Mississippi all the way to Arizona and supply California, Arizona, Nevada with water from the Mississippi. And there's cross-species issues that are always brought up. And so basically she's she put the nicks on that idea. The first thing when you told me that, and when you when you said radical, or you used the word radical to classify Carrie Lake, I that word to me is not something, I, and I don't think you meant to use it in that term. But I think when I hear the word radical, I think of an extremist, like a, an Islamic extremist that is intent on doing harm to another person or or a community. Uh, because of their radical I- beliefs or ideas, I think Carrie Lake. She's not so, Carrie Lake. She's not so much a radical, but she is a common sense type thinker. And why is that? Coming back to what I brought up before, because she hasn't been in this game as a politician, trying to satisfy everybody w- w- and trying to do everything. And that's what politicians fall into the trap of. They think that they have to walk this line of, well, I've got to get everybody on my team in order to move along. And really, that's not the case. You just have to get the majority of people on your on your side. And the majority of people are on Carrie Lake's side when it comes to ballot issues, uh, meaning ballot fraud, uh, election fraud. That was her number one thing that she'd never shied away from um, on the, these water issues where she's saying, I'm not going to close my mind to bringing water from the Mississippi. You know, that might sound ludicrous to some people, but why, why uh, stop before we even get started? And I think it's that mentality that most people fall into, and that's the hindrance of their success. I think the antithesis of, of success is the I know attitude. And I, bring, I, I, say that, I say that because I see it every day in my own kids. When I ask them to take out the trash or I ask them, hey, I need you to do this like this or like that. And the first response is, I know, I know, I know. And it's like, no, you don't know. Just stop saying I know and listen to what I'm telling you and you will be successful. But it's con- it's very, very common in a lot of us where we, we want to feel like we know. And when you, when you use that mentality or you go to that, you're closing your mind off to any other uh, avenue of possibility, like bringing water from the Mississippi. I don't really know. I mean, I mean, Taylor Robeson can say that she knows because she's got so many years of experience in the law and in water law and in development law here in Arizona. And so maybe she feels like, oh, that's impossible. 
But the moment you feel like that or you say that to yourself, the I know mentality, I know that's impossible because it, it's just, it just can't be done. Well, now, now it won't be done because you've already closed that idea off. I think the best people are those that are willing to listen and actually implement things that might be, using your word, Sean, radical or common sense, so common sense that it's like, well, I don't know, that's kind of too easy. But I think that's what uh, Carrie Leak does is she brings to the table these ideas, or not so much ideas, but she's willing to listen to uh, common sense ideas or crazy, what would be termed as crazy by some people ideas. And if it works, it works. If yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't. You nix it and you move on. And I think successful companies are, are those that, that try this, this type of um, try and then release, try and release, uh, try and improve, try and nix, try and um, move forward with ideas. And we've done that on, on different scales over the years, Sean. Um, there's a book, what is it, the 12-week year or something like that? Yeah. And we implemented that a few years ago. Uh, it's a book called The 12-Week Year, and we implemented that concept into our our law firm. And basically what we were doing is you you bring in a concept of, let's throw all the ideas out there. We would have a, a think tank with those that were employed in our office. We would have a staff meeting. And what are the issues that are that we're seeing out there in, in the functioning of our law firm or in our company? And let's throw out some ideas. What do you think? What can we do to make it more efficient or do this, that, or the other? No ideas are off the table. And then we would implement those ideas for a quick 12 weeks. If the idea was not successful or didn't bring efficiency to our law firm or our company, then we move on and we, we do it again and you keep moving. And this was this was really a, a, an idea that was shown by, was it Xerox back in the, the 90s? I can't remember the company or Fujitsu or something like that. It was a copy company. And I think Xerox was a bad example that they used in that 12-week. Xerox and Kodak. They, they got behind. And if you remember, historically, Xerox and, and, and uh, Kodak. Kodak were, they were like the heavy hitters in, yeah. in photography, in film, and uh, during the 70s, 80s, the early 90s. And then all of a sudden, where did they go? And so this book, the twelve week year, it brings up the it shows a case study of Kodak and um, of Xerox and how they got stuck in this same old same old mentality. They weren't progressing, they weren't changing. And as technology changed, they got they got uh, phased out by other companies. Other more competitive companies came in and did things faster, better, and gave us better products. And therefore, they Xerox and, and Kodak kind of fell behind. And, and got they, overlooked. They stopped innovating. And you have to constantly innovate because the only constant, really, is change. And we've seen that. And it's happening faster and faster, especially in our world, where uh, we, we know that specifically. And I think our kids really get that when you look at the phones that we have, right? If you've got a phone that's two years old, that's a dinosaur, right? <laughs> and um, they're always looking for the latest and greatest and I think that's a really good characteristic to have is to look for the new things and, and what more can it do uh, the phone that I'm holding in my hand right now is probably two years old and it does a hundred times more things than I even know about but um, that's not good enough for my kids and when I'm talking about it for my kids now some people look at this as selfish and that maybe fits my category too, but um, I say, okay, what kind of phone do you want to get? And you, I, with this flip phone, we'll be able to let you call mom from school. And they're like, a flip phone? 
and they're like turning their nose up at a flip phone. And I'm thinking, even if I was in high school, a flip phone would have been would have made me the coolest kid in school. I mean, if you had a pager on your belt, that was that meant you were you were popular and you were in demand. And a flip phone, I mean, when I got back, uh, I, I spent two years in Brazil. When I got back from Brazil, uh, when I left, nobody had them. When I got back, everybody had them. And and then it, it quickly went up as soon as the iPhone came out. I think it was 2006 or something. The big breakthrough when the iPhone came out, and. Uh, and I thought, that's going to be pretty cool. And now we know that it's just dominated how we get our information. It's probably the number one source, you know, these smartphones of how we interact with one another. And it's that type of thinking where you're constantly innovating and thinking. I remember when text first came out, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> and now it's like if somebody calls me without texting first, it's kind of like showing up on my front door without... without Cookies? Yeah, without, <laughs> without no, without any notice. Oh. It's like, how dare you, right? How dare you call me when you didn't text me to see if I was available? And because uh, why did you even call to start with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, just text me. Yeah, yeah. With the, with the text, we can just get the information across and we can move on. We don't have to deal with the pleasantries. Which, yeah, does that uh, get rid of some of the the humor human interaction that we enjoy? Yes, but it also frees up your time to do more of the things you really actually do enjoy instead of chatting on the phone with somebody you don't particularly. Uh, want to hang out with and uh, exchange pleasant like who I want names <laughs> right now on the air I want you to tell me <laughs> no but so yeah I, me I, it's no. me Sean I know you do why don't you answer my calls no, you're, you're the one that doesn't text me back um, so <laughs> right. no but uh, yeah, Carrie Lake I, I, I did like her I voted for her Let, let's let's jump over to this this uh, issue of people being endorsed by Trump right so I googled the other day whether somebody had to pay for an endorsement by Trump, because I really didn't know. And, um, and your your thinking is, what was your thinking? Why did you? Why did that even come is, to your is mind? Is Trump doing this just to get rich, and he doesn't really care about the candidate or their or their politics, or is he actually endorsing the person because he believes that he's going? They're going to perpetuate the type of ideas that made America great under his leadership. And um, what I found was I, okay. So I searched Google and. I know right now that Google is going to be filtering out anything that is pro-Trump and is going to be accentuating and putting to the top of the search um, bar what would condemn him. And uh, all I found was that people who he endorsed tended to uh, visit his properties, whether it was in New Jersey or Florida or Las Vegas, they tended to visit his properties. And then they would show as, as evidence of this the individuals that he endorsed golfing with him or going out to dinner with him and things like that. And I'm like, well, why is that a bad thing? So Trump is actually getting to know on a personal level the people that he endorses. But their spin on it was these people are enriching Trump not directly by, by paying him money, but indirectly by supporting his businesses. And I'm like, well, isn't that kind of the idea? Don't we want people that do business the way we like it done? And so we go and we, we use their services that we provide. We go and we spend time with them and they understand the type of character we have. And then from an organic type of um, method, a relationship is built and an endorsement is gained. I'm like, that, that to me, even though they were trying to spin it as something negative, reinforce that, hmm, 
okay, these endorsements were not illegitimate. They weren't just to the highest bidder. And that's a very good thing because I, I'd be very turned off if it was just whoever came up with a million bucks first got Trump's endorsement. Um, the other thing is how successful they've been, the individuals that were endorsed. Um, and, and that was downplayed on the Google searches that I found too. It was like, well, how much is Trump's endorsement really worth? These people, and, and it went down a list of people, and it said, yes, there was an 80% success rate of the candidates that he endorsed. But, and they went one by one. This person would have won anyways, and this person really didn't get that much of a nudge, and this person had th these other issues go on, or their opponent had this against them. Look at the end result. Either Trump is incredibly insightful at picking winners, or... The people that he is picking, number one, the American people like as well, and the American people understand that uh, they're following the same type of concepts that have perpetuated good fiscal policy and um, a successful economy and, and, and generally America's presence in the world. That's, that's what Trump did for us. And so Kerry Lake was supported by Trump. He was endorsed by Trump. Who else? Um, we, we got the Senate race, big time um, primary there. And uh, Blake Masters was endorsed by Trump. And overwhelmingly, he got the nomination for the um, GOP candidate to run for yeah. Senate. Blake Masters was the, he's the uh, young entrepreneur, correct? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, okay, I just want to, I voted for him, but I, I want to make sure that, that that's who we're talking about. No, and, and there were some other people like Lamont that uh, he he was a very successful guy, and he contributed a lot to his own campaign. Um, he sold the solar company that he had, and um, I thought that he was a reasonable choice, but um, Masters seemed to be a fighter. He seemed to be another one of those guys that he, he wasn't going to be entrenched in a single type of ideology. He was going to look outside the box, and he got Trump's endorsement, and overwhelmingly the people supported him. We've got to take a break now. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. This is KBLU, and uh, we've been talking a lot about the election results today. Leading up to this, uh, we've been talking in, in previous shows about the candidates, and we had talked about how how um, we like some candidates and other ones we, we didn't like as much. Um, and now the results are in. Uh, last Tuesday was the election results, and, um, and we're starting to see those candidates that were directly backed by or endorsed by, I should say, Trump really were successful on the Republican ticket side leading into the general election in November. And and Sean, you had brought up that uh, Carrie Lake was the first one on that list. It was her versus Taylor Robeson. There were others in that race, that governor race, but really it was just those two. And and Taylor Robeson was more viewed as the more towards the middle choice. I would I would argue she was more uh, safe political, bet. Yeah. yeah, more safe bet. And it's interesting that as you look at the result uh, map of Arizona, you've got Carrie Lake. All over, all Arizona is colored in Carrie Lake's color, except for the very middle, which is Maricopa County, and that was for Taylor Robeson. And when you think of Maricopa County, 
also, sorry to cut you off here, but... No, go for it. I looked at Maricopa and I looked at Pima, and uh, we know that there's a, a stronger um, progressive... Left-leaning or centralist, let's say. Yeah, but central has been pushed so far left that it's not central anymore. Yeah. And so when I look at those counties, you know, I got a lot of friends and colleagues up there, but when I go up there, the mentality is different than here in Yuma. Yeah. Here in Yuma, we, I, I feel like, are, hold to true conservative values. Conservative up in Maricopa or in Pima County ha, has been pushed to the left. And so I really liked when I saw that, that, uh, that map where it outlined the outlier counties, they were looking for somebody to shake things up a little bit. And, and I think they were the more adamant supporters for Trump. And, and they wanted someone that said, yes, the elections were... Uh, inconsistent, and and there needed to be something explained about them, and we're not just going to let that thing go just because so many people say it's already debunked, because just by using the word debunked doesn't mean the argument's over. It means, how has it been debunked? Where's the evidence? Because we got a ton of evidence that shows that there was uh, irregularities at the least and fraud at the worst. And so, um, and, and uh, Carrie Lake was unwilling to back down off of that, and I, I really did like that because... She's not afraid of being called a conspiracy theorist and, and being pushed back off of true legitimate issues but because we found time and time again that um, individuals that are really onto something are called conspiracy theorists. And then it plays out later on that they were, attract, they were in fact on the right track and, and had something valid to argue there, but they were silenced because they were being bullied into silence and called a conspiracy theorist that was following some debunked data. I think uh, I grew up in a rural county, in Cochise County, and if I could classify, I think, the mentality of most of Arizona, uh, getting back to this map concept, if you were to look at the map, even in the general election of 2020, where we supposedly flipped to blue, Really, Maricopa County was blue. The rest of Arizona was red. And that's historically how it is. And even in this last election, I would I'd argue that's probably how it is as well. And this upcoming election is probably going to be that way too. It's more purple in Maricopa County. But really, the, the outskirts of Arizona, outside of Maricopa County, is probably red. And uh, I grew up in a county like that. And I think it's the mentality of this old cowboy type thing. It's the common sense, get the job done, and don't tell me uh, how to do things or don't let the government tell me how to do things. We're going to get it done, whether you like it or not. And a good example of that is uh, Sheriff Mack. Back in the 90s, Sheriff Mack was, a, was the first and last sheriff that sued the federal government. He sued the Clinton administration from Graham County. It's right to the north of Cochise County where I grew up. It's about 20 minutes to the north of where I grew up. And Sheriff Mack sued them for gun rights. And it was the only successful case in the United States that really secured the Federalist-type uh, concept between the state power and the, the federal power. Basically, what, uh, the, what Sheriff Mack said was, you can't federal government come in here if it was not in the Constitution. It says in the Constitution that if it's not enumerated in the Tenth Amendment, if it's not enumerated to the uh, the um, federal government, the power, then the states are free to regulate themselves. And that, that case won. And it's still really good law. Uh, and it supports the 10th Amendment that Arizona has the ability, every state has the ability to regulate anything that is not 
enumerated in the Constitution or set apart in the Constitution to the federal government. So you could argue that a lot of these agencies really don't have the power to come in and say, hey, this is how you need to do things in the education realm, or this is how you need to do things in the uh, border realm. The argument is there that, no, you can't come in and tell us, Arizona, because really the Constitution doesn't give you that right. Yeah, you've formed these agencies over the years, but that's not in the Constitution either. So forming these agencies, maybe you have federal power, but you can't come into Arizona and say uh, to us that you need to do this, that, or the other with your guns or uh, regulate our education system. I think what's happened over the years is that the federal government says, well, if you don't play by our rules, then we're not going to fund your schools. We're not going to give you these grants. We're not going to give you this money. So they've tied it to purse strings, really, the legislature has. Uh, but Sheriff Mack, back in the 90s, he sued the federal government. It's If you want to look up the case, it's Mack v. Uh, U.S., and it's a really good case to read because in there, Justice Scalia was the majority opinion writer, and he he really solidifies the Founding Fathers' intention when they drafted the Constitution of keeping the federal government separate from the state governments and how the states were to regulate themselves. And, and if you were to Google um, Sheriff Mack today, he has his own organization. It's a, a group of sheriffs around the nation, and they have been really on point in, in the... Uh, the election fraud issues. In fact, uh, Sheriff Wilmot here in Yuma County, he's been one of the sheriffs that's been in the nation pushing these issues. Sheriff Mack, going, going back to Sheriff Mack, his argument is that the sheriffs in the United States are the ones that are our last hope for freedom. They stand in the way between the federal government and our local state rights. And it's them that really need to get into the picture here. If we're going to have election fraud type uh, persecution or prosecution happening, the sheriffs need to get involved and need to start doing that. So I think to myself, well, okay, we've got a great sheriff in Sheriff Wilmot, and he's actually the one pursuing some election issues down in South County or in Yuma County as a whole. But really, if you were to watch 2000 Mules, that documentary by uh, Dinesh D'Souza, you'll find that most of the fraud happened in the metropolitan areas. We're talking about Atlanta. We're talking about uh, over in Pennsylvania. Um, oh, my gosh. What is it? What? Philadelphia. And specifically here in Arizona, it was Phoenix, or in other words, Maricopa County. So you need a conservative, not even, a, I shouldn't even say a conservative. You need a, an unbiased sheriff in that county to actually go out and do the work to find the evidence of election fraud. Unfortunately, we don't have a sheriff in Maricopa County that will do that. He's got a political skew. And a sheriff should not be political. They should see the law as the law, and they should persecute, I keep saying persecute, prosecute, don't persecute, but prosecute those uh, violations of election fraud. And, and that's Sheriff Mack's um, argument. And we see that in Sheriff Wilmot as well. He's one of those, um, I would say, cowboy cowboy uh, sheriffs in the United States that understands that it's not a Democrat or Republican issue. It is a legal issue. And if you break the law in my county, we're going to come after you and we're going to prosecute um, that, that violation. And so we need sheriffs across the nation to get involved and find the evidence. And I think uh, 2000 Mules has really already done a lot of the, the legwork and if they would just use the GPS cell phone data, that's most of the evidence you need. If you were to look at the January 6th um, prosecutions that are happening right now, most of that is because of 
pinging of cell phone data. They can show that you, hey, you were on the Capitol grounds. You passed that barricade. You're not allowed to be there. Therefore, um, you're going to prison for seven years. These people had no other issues in their lifetime. In fact, they're really good, God-fearing people. And now they're going to prison and they're locked up without any due process. Why? Because their cell phones were in their pocket when they did this, when they were on the on the steps of the Capitol. And the FBI is using that data to prosecute them as actual hard evidence. So why can't we use that evidence when it comes to these mules? Which, which just, again, lends to the hypocrisy of the argument here. When we're prosecuting these individuals that were involved in um, the riots that occurred on January 6th, and I'm not going to call it insurrection because it wasn't an insurrection. There was no armed military involved. Trump didn't call out the National Guard or, or any type of military, military support for it. And... Um, yeah, was he a bit reckless in how he conducted it? Possibly, but that that's not an insurrection. If he wanted a true insurrection, a lot of blood would have been spilt and there would be some big firepower behind it. And that was not the case. It was a bunch of people that were upset about how the elections were run and they marched on the Capitol, they got out of control, and then they vandalized it a bit. It, it was a bad case of vandalism is essentially what it was. And when vandalism gets bad and people lose their lives and, and mobs um, can do some bad things in a real hurry. But you got to look at that for what it was instead of uh, what the media is portraying it to be. And they're saying, okay, we can prosecute these people because we have evidence that they were there because of their cell phones, but we can't uh, look at evidence for um, these mules that carried all these ballots to the ballot boxes because they're cell phones because that's not validated um, type of evidence that we can use. And it, it's such a double standard. So that's all the time we have for today. This is Life, Death, and the Law, KBLU, 560 AM. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.